Today's episode is brought to you by Musical Theatre Radio's Merch Store. Looking for that perfect gift for someone or just want to treat yourself to some great musical theatre themed merch? Head to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the All Things Theatre button on the homepage and check out all the different designs available. And now, today's interview. Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theatre Radio. I am your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. Not too long ago, we had Caden Zane Marshall on to talk about his career as an actor, influencer, and as an ASL interpreter. Now, during our interview, he talked about being the personal interpreter to deaf writer, director, Broadway actor, Joshua Castiel. And I thought, I'd love to have Joshua on to talk about his career in musical theater. His resume includes Mr. Holland's Opus, the musical, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and the 2015 Broadway revival of Spring Awakening. I reached out. He said yes. And so I'd like to welcome Joshua to the show. Hello. Hi. Um, Your name is epic and amazing. I love it. <laughs> well, like, thank ooh, you. Jean-Paul Jovenoff. It's like, ooh, it's like, oh, I love it. I'll, I'll let my parents know after this. So. Okay, please do. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. So before we get into talking about everything, I always want to get to know my guest a little bit better. So I always ask for a 30-second bio. So who is Joshua in 30 seconds? Uh, Joshua is a little boy from Louisiana in a small town. Um, he does not uh, want to hurt anybody so he reverts to this like little boy state even though he's like 28 29 it's so, like every time i like talk to people like i don't i try not to be aggressive um i love art and creativity and i love anyone who like puts themselves out of their comfort zone to create something even if it's not good i'm like you did that yes and so mm -hmm. i try to give myself the same permission and that's who i am Ding. that was perfect you have about eight more seconds do you oh. want to put anything else in there um i'm louisiana which means i'm cajun and i love Cajun seasoning and please put salt on your food. God damn it. <laughs> We've, this is not only a musical theater show. It's a cooking show. So thank you. It's a cooking show. Yeah. So we're going to make gumbo while we talk about musical theater. Oh, yes. That's yeah. a brilliant idea. We just uh, are doing that. <laughs> I would be lying if I didn't say I thought about doing a show where I just cook Cajun food and talk about musical theater. But I was like, we have enough of this content. You know, Kiki Ball Change is doing it. I'll let her do it. Exactly. We'll just stick to what yeah. we do. So. Yeah. So when you were growing up, were you always into musical theater or is that something you discovered a little bit later in life? Um, I think I, I remember like watch well, all my whole, my whole life because I remember Disney movies would come on and I could not stop watching The Wizard of Oz, Lion King. I would watch those two movies on repeat. Mm -hmm. And then there's that like movie musical version of, of Pinocchio called Geppetto. Mm-hmm. That one was another one that I watched on loop. And so my family was like, for God's sakes, get this kid in another space to do this. So they put me in community theater. And yeah, I think I've just always been into musical theater. But everyone's like, how are you going to do this? This kid is deaf and can't really hold a tune. So <laughs> and then I made it on Broadway. I don't know. Exactly. That'll teach them to say anything. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are you the black sheep of the family? Like the only one in theater and musicals? Or is that kind of a part of? Uh, what you grew up with it's funny you ask me that because like i do consider myself the black sheep in some ways but not because i am artsy i think my whole family is kind of artsy and i think louisiana is a very artsy state mm -hmm. like we're very artistic like we we i mean the hurricane comes destroys everything and then we have to rebuild life so i think naturally we're creative people i just don't think that louisiana sees it as a viable um career Mm -hmm. like they don't know how to make that an economy yet. And so like, I feel like if we did, we'd blow up. But I have always been creative. My aunt's been like, she scrapbooks, she makes little models. My my family, my sister's really good at improv, but she works at a bank. My brother's really good at improv, but he works on a farm. It's like everyone's kind of kooky and crazy. So I, I had a lot of um, people to bounce off of growing up. So yeah. Okay. Now, obviously, yeah. you ended up in theater, but was there ever anything else you thought about doing as a career path? Ooh, I thought about being a lawyer. Hmm. A lawyer or like a therapist. Those, those are like, not like a trauma therapy, but more of like language therapy. Mm -hmm. Because when I was going to college, they were like, um, 
again, acting is not really a viable career. So like, what is your, like, if we're going to give you money to go to college, like, what is it going to be? And I was like, art therapy. So I really want to use Viola Spoolin techniques to work with deaf kids who don't have language yet. Mm-hmm. And to give them, you know, to really use theater techniques to get them out of their shell, get them acquiring language. And that was my alternative route, but have not had the time or space to do that. And I'm thankful for that. I want to be an actor artist. Yeah. Well, lawyer theater, it's pretty close. You're performing in front of a, a audience. So yeah. you're justifying an incident and doing the bat story, figuring yeah. out your character's motivation. It's the same thing, really. Yeah. And <laughs> do the research and all that. Yeah, so, yeah. What so, would your career path be if you weren't doing this? Mine? Yeah. Uh, no, I'd be doing this. I, I chose to do this. Uh, the earliest thing I thought about doing was um, computer programming, which was terrible because I was awful at it. I thought about flying helicopters. Oh, but these glasses, they kind of got in the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, but I mean, you must have had me MySpace page. If you were thinking about coding, you must have made that MySpace profile. Like, oh no, no, no! I was terrible. I was good at coming t- up with ideas, but, but I couldn't. Coding. I didn't know how to program. I was just awful at that. So I said, "Okay, no, I didn't decide yeah. to get the interviews changed to me. I didn't." <laughs> I didn't get into musical theater really as an option until like grade 12. Oh, and wow. Went, yeah. So it was really late. I loved theater. I went to theater, but I didn't decide to do it until grade 12. And then next year I was in college. So what was the gateway musical? For you? Like I, I call it like a drug instead of yeah. a drug. I'm going to say gateway musical. Um, well, I'm a, of a certain age. So it would have been uh, Phantom and Les Mis. So it's that age. Yeah. It's like epic saga. It's just, it's just exactly. huge. Yeah. <laughs> I remember those were the first two that I really got to know. Uh, what was your uh, gateway? Oh, uh, I consider, I consider Chicago the first like Broadway musical. It was the Queen Latifah movie. And mm. my family was like, they're in lingerie. Don't, don't go and do watch this movie in private. And I was like, okay. And then I was, I watched the movie. I was like, oh, they don't know that I'm gay yet. Okay. This is going to be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, love the bodies, love everything I'm seeing. Just not really my um, idea of private material, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So where did you go to school? Did you, did you go to school for theater itself or did you take a different Mm -hmm. path? Oh, this is a very interesting uh, story that I love to tell. Uh, I went to public school. So in uh, Louisiana, they have um, you have elementary school, middle school. Mm-hmm. And um, as a deaf person, you, um, I'm sorry, I stopped at middle school and it makes it sound like Louisiana stops at eighth grade. And no, no that's not, no, no, there's a high school. There's a high school. Uh, but what I was saying is like, as a deaf person, you have to go to a specific school because they provide interpreters at mm-hmm. some schools, not all schools. So they bust a lot of deaf kids to the Lafayette, Louisiana. And so I went to SJ Montgomery, LJ Alamo, and Lafayette High, and they were all in Lafayette, and they all had deaf programs there. So they had interpreters. So I was in a class with other hearing kids, and I'd be like two other deaf people with mm-hmm. an interpreter. And uh, lucky for me, they were all art schools. So I was able to take electives that were like visual art, piano, uh, strings, um, like they had all these things. But in elementary and middle school, they assess you. They're like asking what your interests are. You have to try things you've never tried before. And then in high school, you pick a career path. And so in eighth grade, I declared theater as my career path. And so that meant like, luckily, the high school was the performing arts high school and deaf program. So I was able to go there and um, I joined this program that was like a fast track. So I would go to school at six in the morning while everyone got to school at 7.15. And so like at six in the morning to like 8.30, I was doing uh, like papers on Greek mythology and Greek theater. I was doing Roman theater. I was doing, uh, I wrote a paper on Angela Lansbury and Sweeney Todd, like all these things. And so it was really good. And that class, uh, my teacher really talked about using art to revolt uh, to make a change and so that was very much his thing which ruffled feathers obviously but it was a lot of like what did people use theater for to change in the world how do we hold the mirror up how do we upset people and make change and that was fun 
And then there was another program called Talented Theater. And it's like, I think there's only four states that do it now, but it's like AP and um, Gifted. And then there's Talented. And it's basically like AP and Gifted, but for people who have talent. And so you audition for this program and there's teachers who have to take classes and are working artists, but they also teach at the same time. And so I was very lucky to have this teacher who actually came to me in French class and she said, I've seen you. And I was like, well, she's like, I've seen you do theater. Like, why are you not in my class? And I said, well, no one's really nominated me. And she goes, no, you just auditioned. And I was like, oh, and she said, okay. And then a week later she came up and she tapped me on the shoulder and she signed, I want to be your teacher. I'm learning sign. And I was like, yes, so. And so that was my uh, sophomore year. So I did that my junior and senior year to classes with her. And she was very much devising theater. Who are you? What do you bring to the table? How do you do um, the work that you do from your lens? We're not trying to recreate Angela Lansbury. We're trying to make our own. You know, I mean, God loves, we could all try to be Angela Lansbury, but it's not going to work, you know? Yeah. So that's my long answer. Nice. And then after you went to a college or university for theater? I went to, I went to Gallaudet University um, in Washington, D.C., which is an all-deaf university. Mm -hmm. um, it's the only university in the world that is catered to deaf people. And I really went there looking for a sense of identity and deaf theater. And when I was there, I realized that we as a community have not yet um formed a curriculum. We have not yet created principles and the uh, theories. And um, that's something I'm really hoping to do when I get older is like be able to publish books and teach like deaf theatrical principles, like talk about what is the, what is our experience and how we approach the craft, bring to the craft of acting. But I don't think we've gotten there as a community yet because we didn't have the financial support. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of things of being in a minority group that um, isn't really well known. So I left after a year because I got a little thing called Spring Awakening, you know, so. Never heard of it. Nope. Never heard of it. Me, me neither. No. My hearing aids were out. When, You'll have when to tell us more that. about it. Maybe maybe the uh, yes. listeners who don't know it either. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so okay, let's jump right into Spring Awakening then. Let's do it. How did, how did that happen? Oh, my God. It's YouTube audition. <laughs> so they, like, contacted the school and were like, is anyone deaf interested in being in this production? And I was like. Yeah, sure, I'll audition. So I submitted my audition. I did Acapella by Carmen. And then I submitted a 12-night uh, monologue. Mm -hmm. And then they told me that I got the role and then I had to come to Los Angeles. So I flew to Los Angeles for the first production. And we spent July 4th to September like 20th just rehearsing and building the show with Michael Arden. Wow. And that was honestly one of the biggest moments of my career that like gave me um like watching Michael create it was so interesting to be like in the cast because I'm like watching him bring in like originally a desk for like circles tables mm -hmm. and then the next day they're like round they're like rectangular tables and the next day we're all in like individual tables so watching him tell us how to do these songs and then calibrating along the way was really something that helped me as an artist to be like oh that's how you develop that's how you play that's how you you know yeah. create it was really interesting i'm going to talk about you directing a little bit later but you obviously probably learned something about directing uh from that tell us about that what did what did you see uh, and experience and, and gather from that so michael is a really smart artist because he knew working with deaf artists meant that you're going to get people with passion, but maybe not necessarily training. Mm -hmm. So he gave us a month of boot camp. So it basically was like every day we came in, we did physical like exercises with Spencer Lift, who's the choreographer, and he was hardcore. He made us run around a block for like 10, 15 minutes, and we came inside, we're out of breath, and he's like, you should not be out of breath. Mom, we're doing this every day. And we're like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And doing all these like core strengthening, body work. And then he had us, um, Michael had us with our voice actors talk about what does that character do when we wake up? Who is this person? What did this person mean to us? So we did a lot of that, like before we even did the script, before we even did the translation, there was a lot of like acting work. And so I think I learned a lot about like what it means to elevate a community that has not necessarily been given resources and training while still making space to create and include our perspective. 
So it was really enriching and enlightening to see this artist who had a big idea, but would always say, uh, slow is fast and fast is slow. So if we move too fast, it's going to take more time. So we got to really take our time. We really got to think about what we're doing. And so I watched him restage moments. I watched him point out translation things. He was like, I don't know if I like that. You know, and so it was like, oh. And so when he posed questions, it was like I could see how he was thinking about story and how each character needs to raise the states in that moment. How do we raise the states? How do we, what is the relationship dynamics? And so I'm talking in fragmented thoughts, but it was just, it was a very um, intense session for those months. And then watching him do it again for a second production and then watching him take it to Broadway and just watching him make concessions for lack of resources for um, a, a vision, like an idea from a light designer or access like just listening to him come to the table with like hey we're in this situation as a team we need to do this and it just really taught me a lot and then you go watch once on this island and you watch a parade and you're like oh i see the style like i learned so he definitely influenced me a lot so just to take it back a uh, first step when you first got cast mm-hmm. what was going through your head because this is a musical right yeah it's obviously music How- were you, was there any trepidation, any go, oh my, what have I got myself into? Or was it just throw yourself in and go, let's do this? Well, I think it was the latter. I think because like I already, I mean, I had a collection of, I'm, I'm a gay boy. So I had all the Broadway musical CDs on my phone. And like, it's funny because I got Spring Awakening, listened to it. And I was like, what is this? Admit, the mirror, mirror blue night. And now our bodies are, oh, this is trash. And I threw the CD away and I didn't keep it. And then now I'm like, oh, I should have. But like, I always had translated and played with like musical, like um, interpretations on my own. So like be given this opportunity, I was really excited. And also it gave me the sense of like, see, I can do it, mom, dad, I can. Because everyone in small town Louisiana is like, love the passion, but how are you really going to do this? Like we go to watch people sing. We don't go to watch people sign. So, you know, so watching Michael, I think I was just really excited to learn and be like, how do we market this? How do we do this? I know that I can perform. I believe in myself. I believe in my friends, but I don't know how do we package this in a way that's digestible for hearing audiences Mm -hmm. who don't know sign language. So where does the voice come from? Where does the music come from? Where the audiences watch me or the singers? So it it was definitely curiosity and excitement and trust because Jeff West is such a big name that it was like, if I had to be in any theater company, this is the one to learn from, you know? So uh, this was your first big show then, obviously. Oh yeah. So what was that like? That, that moment you first stepped on the stage, the lights come up, you're on stage. Give us your, your, how you felt. Oh, I remember because the rehearsal process was so long, I was like, thank God, let's do this, you know? But it was in a small, intimate theater. And I remember it was like a hundred seats. And I remember being like, oh, this audience, if we don't do it right, you can feel it. Like you can feel the room be like, okay, we're bored. But it was not that. I mean, it was like electric because it was so small that we were like exploding. And then I remember going to Beverly Hills where it was like 500 seats. And that was different because we really had to reach over that audience. You know, it was different because you're used to a hundred. Mm-hmm. You can you can kind of hit that wall. I imagine it's like singing. You know, when you sing in a small space, you don't have to project this much. But in that space, you really have to fill it. And it was just like, oh, then going to Broadway was different because it was less out and more up because everyone's just so close, but up. And so it was like, that was, that was fun. I really appreciate it. I remember on Broadway, on opening night, I had a moment in the pre-show where we were walking and I'm looking and I just started crying. I was like, that's Molly Matlin. That's Cameron Manheim. That is Patrick motherfucking Page. That is Russell. Like, I was just like, I am in the room with these people. And then just getting to do this story and to hear the audience gasp and go on this journey. It was just so fascinating. You know, it, I... Was the transfer to Broadway always known or was that uh, something oh, thought of later? That was, I mean, that was the goal. I and mean, no one said it. 
Yeah. But that was very much the vibe in the room. And as we were creating, I mean, we watched Cody Lassen come in the room. We watched Ken Davenport come in the room. We watched Leslie Odom Jr. at one point came in the room. And I'm, I mean, we're doing this little hundred seat theater and Grant Gustin is coming in and like these big names are coming in. And so like, we quickly realized like there's something happening. Mm-hmm. And I remember at the end of the Beverly Hills run, we went from May to June. Then we closed in June and they said, we don't have any firm plans. We don't know what's going to happen, but we really thank you for being with us on this journey. We hope something happens. And I was like, okay. And I went home and I remember getting into a little bit of a disagreement with my family. They're like, you have to go back to college. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm writing this to Broadway. And like, but Broadway will always be there. And I was like, no, it won't. College will always be there. Broadway is not going to have this opportunity, you know? Yeah. And the next morning I got an email being like, we'd like to offer you the role of Ernst. And I was like, what? What? So apparently Waitress was like, we need a little bit more time to develop. So that theater had a six month extension. And so we took that six months. We knew it was ending in January and we were opening in August. Like we knew that going in. So like in June, I turned around and had to figure out how to move to New York City by July. It was so bad. Okay, I'm glad you you mentioned that because I I saw the the length of the run when I was doing my research. I went that doesn't seem very long for that show, but I guess it 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 had to be because of it. Okay, so that yeah, makes it way more sense. Uh, yeah, and there was an interesting story that throughout the run, the producer sat us down and said, "Um, not I'm gonna be real with you guys. Like, um, this show's not selling well, and um, if it were up to me, we close." But every single donor, every singer, every single producer said to keep the show open because it means so much. And I was like, whoa, that was a big eye-opening moment. And it then got back to the question of how do I make this marketable and desirable and digestible for hearing audiences to pay for it, you know? And so I still have that in my head, but that was just a great eye-opening moment, but also humbling because like these people really believe in what we're doing and it's making an impact, you know? Yeah. I'm surprised that it didn't sell well, but then again, who knows what people want to go see or right. see or right, it, right, yeah. yeah there's, there was a focus group done, and they were like, "Um, is, what is the reason that you want to go see the show?" And they're like, "Sign language." What is the number one reason you don't want to go see the show? Sign language. And I was like, <laughs> "I don't," you know. So it's like, yeah. gotta figure it out. Yeah. No, I can see maybe the bigger reason is the the type of music because it's rock. It's and yeah. the age of people go to Broadway. The old people aren't going to necessarily want to go see that content and that sort of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, I do, but <laughs> same time. <laughs> so, what was that like? You, you said you had to pick up and move to New York. What was that like? Going, you know, moving. You were in LA, so that's pretty big too. But yes, now you're in the I mean, mecca of musical theater. Yeah, I mean, I. Growing up in a small town, I don't think I allowed myself to realize how much moves I was making. I mean, my family has never really moved to a big town like that. Like, we all stay in Louisiana. It's like moving to D.C. was okay because I was in college. The moving to L.A. was a big one. But then, like, figuring out how to move to New York, I had to take out a $20,000 loan. I had to take out a $20,000 loan to get the broker fee, first month, last month's rent, a security deposit. And then like stuff that I needed to live. And so my roommates and I came together, got a $20,000 loan and we paid it off slowly over the course of, you know, and then at the same time, they're like, you have to join the union, which is another $35,000. And then you have to pay fees. And so it was just like, to do this opportunity was great, but it felt so scary because I was going into debt that I was like, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to make this work, you know? Wow, that's crazy. You never hear about, you only hear the stories about, I moved to New York. I got to do a show. You don't right. hear the truth of, I got to get the loan. I got to find a place. This is. A- yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also like no one was going to give us a six month lease because no one wants their tenants to move out in January in the middle of the winter. No one's moving, you know? Yeah. So finding a place to live was really difficult. And a lot of my friends just bit the bullet and signed a year lease, but we were lucky to find like corporate housing mm. situation in Hell's Kitchen that they were like, yeah, for $4,000, you can get a two-bedroom at 700-square-feet apartment. And we're like, all right, here we go. We're all paying a 1000 bucks, and it's four of us in this tiny apartment, but let's do it, you know? Wow. It, yeah. But eight times a week, you got to perform. <laughs> Amen. 
that was I I got to turn 21 on Broadway. Oh on wow. my birthday, I got there. That was a great experience. I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Is there a story that you can tell? <laughs> about or, what? About turning 21 on Broadway. You 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 sounded excited about it. So I thought maybe there was a story. I mean, but. Well, no, I mean, like when the the original end of the date was January tenth, I think, and my birthday's the fourteenth. So oh. I was like, oh, like I won't be able to. But then they extended it a week, and I was like, what? So I got to do it, and then afterwards, I went out to the stage door, and I got so many cakes and stuffed animals, and the fandom was really lovely, and it was just, it was a really special day. That Maybe they extended it for you. They did. Nice. The whole thing was extended for me. Show I for am you. the show. <laughs> so the show closed in January, but yeah. then you got to go to the Tonys. Right? Uh, yeah. That, I, 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 yes, yes. <laughs> that was amazing. That was, I mean, we closed the show. Like, why are we doing the Tonys? We're closed. And like, well, because, you know, it's important. And also, like, it's a historic moment. And also, like, that's what you do is you perform to get people aware of what's going on. And so we, we came back and it was like a, a weird dream of like, Oh, we're doing this again. Like I thought it was done, right. but to see like these mega, like the minute we passed that stage, we passed um, the Hamilton cast and they were like, ah! and we're like, ah! and it was just like, what? <laughs> and then just being in the hotel next door, not in the building and being like, did we win? Did we win? No, the color purple, but we still have the color purple. Yay! You know, it was just, so, it was great. Wait, so tell tell us so you weren't in the building of so you what yeah. did you do? leave the tone the hotel go perform and then leave again yeah so we're like in the basement of the hotel next to the beacon theater so what they do is they have you go up and then outside the door of the of this hotel into the beacon theater there's like a little like on the, it's a sidewalk with two doors so it's not glamorous but they put a tent and they have like all this stuff and so you walk you perform a, a slight song so we did life from hair mm -hmm. so we go perform that and then we go into the building and they have you set up and they have you like ready and then as soon as the curtains go up you're like ready to go into the performance you're done and then you leave the stage and they escort you very quickly out the back door into another tent where lauren uh laura uh osmond is like standing there with levi i think and i was just like uh, hi and they're like how do you feel about like, i don't know i I'm being whisked out of this theater so quickly and everyone's so famous. And it's just like, ah. And then by the time you're, you're, you're back into your brain, you're like, oh, we're in the basement of a hotel again. Okay, that happened. Okay. It was so strange. That is so strange. that is crazy. That is, yeah, again, you never see that part. No. I, they should do, they, they need to do a back behind the scenes type of thing because we always oh. see we only see what's on stage and that's it but right. i love like we're a gopro or something so we can something. follow you around oh that was that was great but it was also funny because like you don't realize how they, i mean they organize everything in advance like everything is set up like when we went to do the rehearsal you're like you have this much time and you go out and all you see in the audience is like cutouts of people's faces so you see like oprah and like lynn close and like Michelle Obama and like all these faces just sitting there, like they're not there, but it's like they have set everyone up and then you go into the dressing room and there's like, um, what is her name? She played in, um, on your feet. She was the original Gloria Estefan. Oh, I'm gonna look I her can't up. remember either. <laughs> yes. Original Gloria Estefan. And this is what Google's for. Yes. <laughs> We are just uh, for the. Oh my listeners. gosh! I cannot. We're this. We're looking for it. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody, somebody listening will Anna. know the answer. Anna Biafane. I cannot say her last name. I'm deaf. Give me a break, please. That's okay. Um, I probably couldn't say it either. It's so, no, not a problem. <laughs> she was. She was in our room, and so literally, when you watch the Tonys, you see her. She comes up, and she's like in an outfit, and she's another one. She literally was like changed, and she like just kept going back and forth and changing. And I was like, oh, but she was sitting in the theater watching the show, but came backstage into our dressing area to change for her performance and then change back into her outfit and back into the theater. And it was just the most like, this is the diva, y'all. This is the diva moment. And I, it was great. Yeah, but, a GoPro would be great. 
<laughs> so you were you were in your hotel you were in the hotel when they made the announcement of they yeah. say this is the revival and the winner is it is it true is it just nice to be nominated or did you go ah for a half a second go ah, but still we're happy i think i think being nominated was a huge honor and we did feel happy i think for the disabled community for the deaf community, I think we were using this as a social gauge. Mm. And and like you said, like an honest, real thought and real feeling. I own the fact that I am a gay white man. I want to own that up right there. You know, I'm I'm hard of hearing. I use my voice. I recognize that, recognize that. And I think when we were nominated, like America's Next Top Model just crowned Niall DeMarco. Okay, like, is this the moment that deaf and disability becomes widely accepted? Is this the moment? And so I remember watching and being like, what is it? And when they said the color purple, it was like, there was a moment inside of me, specifically, where I was like, we're now accepting Black people first. And then I had to go through the biases. I had to have the conversations with my friends. And it was like, why does it have to be Black or disabled? Why does it have to be either or? But I do think it was a moment for us in terms of like, will we finally get that acknowledgement? Will we finally get that like that win that, you know? Um, and that was what I really felt at the moment. But I also felt very proud to be in this collection of artists to be in this I mean it was a, a it was a big season to be a part of mm -hmm. and I think like looking back on it it's like yeah of course like the color purple was amazing it was so powerful and it was a story that was using chairs like us which is what we always thought was like it's interesting they're using chairs and we're using chairs hmm <laughs> but it was a, it was a moment of gratitude but also a moment of like we're not ready yet and then Coda happened, you know, when the Oscar. And so it's like, we definitely saw an upward uh, tra trajection, projection, trajectory. trajectory. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was an, like, we could see it was going there and we were happy to have that mi milestone, I think. Yeah. No, that's, a, I, I loved your answer. It's, it's a very honest answer and it's a very human answer. You would be, have all these conflicting emotions of happiness, sadness, you know, you lost, but you still won in a way because you got the yeah. exposure. So yeah, no, I'm, I thank you for that answer. It's, it's very honest and, and to the point. So yeah. very yeah. cool. It's a so, great question. So you're, you're done with uh, spring awakening. What did, what would, what did you do after that? Um, I literally had a, a little bit of a crisis moment because when I was little, I was like, my biggest dream is to be on Broadway. And then I got it and I was 21. I was like, well, what do I do with my life now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what is the next thing? And the answer is regional theaters are amazing. And I love working there. So if any of your regional theater houses, please contact me. I would love to get more work there. <laughs> um, I did a, a show called Tribes. I don't know if you know that show. It's a straight play. It's about a deaf man in his like mid twenties. Uh, he meets a woman who uh, is a daughter of deaf parents and she gives him a sense of identity. She's like, you're deaf. And he's like, no, 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 I just can't hear. He's like, no, you need to learn sign language. You need to embrace it. And so it's his journey into that. Um, and so I did that show and I got a call to go audition for my friends. Uh, John McGinty was in a production of Hunchback at La Jolla, at, not La Jolla, at La Mirada in mm -hmm. California. And I was like, oh, and so he's a deaf actor and so he played Quasimodo there and I saw it and uh he was like I'm going to children with a lesser god so do you want to audition for this and I was like hunchback absolutely and so I auditioned for it and I got it and I went into Seattle's Fifth Avenue and that just launched me into another area another avenue and I was really thankful for that opportunity but yeah that was kind of where my career went after Spring Awakening it was like I think they just kind of were like what do you, like, what do you deaf artists have to do now? Now we gave you Spring Awakening. What are you doing with that? So some people started writing. Some people started doing, like, their own brand. And I definitely took that moment to, like, what regional theater houses have? Like, what stories do we want to tell? And so I've been very fortunate to have a good relationship with theaters and to continue working in this space. Um, yeah. And I'm a core company member at uh, ACT Theater in Seattle, Washington, which is amazing and I love it and 
that's kind of where I'm at. Is that answering your question? Am I just bragging at this point? <laughs> it's yes and a little bit of yes, but that's okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Mm. We're we're theater people. We're gonna love our egos and ourselves anyway. So we, we need to talk to. about it, right? So Thank it's you. okay. Thank you. Yeah. So so I love to transition into the directing. Now, when did you start um thinking of going in that direction? Oh, ooh, that's a good question. I think. I think I've always been a storyteller. I just never thought myself as a director mm -hmm. um, until I started um, started doing like improv sessions with my friends in LA. And like I forced us to write sketches and then we put together like sketch comedy shows in LA. And like that was when I was like, oh, like I like spearheading projects. I like this. And so I started coming up with ideas and um. I think I've always been in this position where I'm between the deaf and the hearing world. And so I've always had to like, I've always had to be like, this is what the director wants, but my deaf peers aren't getting it. And so I have to be like, hey, this is what he's saying. And they're like, oh. And then always like, sometimes my deaf peers would talk and the interpreter wouldn't really interpret them well and have to be like, what he really, what they're really saying is da 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 da. And they're like, oh. And so like, I've always been in the middle part. And so it's like, what happens if I'm, in charge like how do what does it do we still have to go through uh, an interpreter or can we like in, communicate as one ensemble and so like I started like getting myself more and more out there and now it's becoming this thing of like how do I use the depth experience to elevate a story which is what I learned from being in the room with Michael Arden it's what I learned from watching uh from being in the room for Hunchback was like what does it mean when the Hunchback is actually deaf you know what does it mean to have this and so i was very fortunate after hunchback to be asked to do romeo and juliet with one of my favorite directors and he was like i need you to help me like i don't know what it means to have a deaf romeo i just know that there is a deaf romeo in front of me mm -hmm. so what does this do and so like retranslating re um calibrating the script in terms not really changing lines but like what does it mean when a character looks at a, a deaf person and goes um can you read? It hits very differently than like what they normally do when they talk to a, a, a hearing actor. It yeah. says it in Romeo and Juliet. There's a guy, Peter comes up to Romeo and says, can you read? Which in normal life, you're just like, oh, okay, he's asking. But when you ask a deaf person, it changes that moment. And so it's like owning those moments, owning those choices and building the story from there. It's been an interesting process. And I think it's given me insight into like, I have something to say as a director. I have something to bring to the table as a storyteller. And so that's kind of like, it's kind of got there and I am very happy to be here. Yeah. That's cool. And, and, and my talks with, um, Caden, with my interview, he mentioned that you directed uh, Peter and the Starcatcher and because yes. I've directed it as well. So I'd love to hear your process of it. Cause when he was talking about it, he was describing scenes. I was like, I know those scenes. I went through yeah. them as well. So yeah. I'd love to yeah. hear how, how that went for you. Um, it was great. It was really good. It taught, I mean, it, it's, I mean, to just set a scene for our listeners of like Peter and the Starcatcher is, I mean, how would you describe Peter and the Starcatcher? It's, and I think I heard one of your interviews saying it was like the prequel or prequel to uh, Peter Pan, but, That's but right. slightly different, but yeah. Well, it's like it's a, the writing style is so strange and that's the part that like, I have a hard time explaining it's like it's like it's kind of I, I call it almost like a series of unfortunate events where it like pauses and they're like we're going to talk to you about this moment and then back into it and so it's very like artsy I'm not gone and I remember watching it at the Lincoln Center in Washington DC and I remember being like where are we because it was all like black with rope and boxes now like, they're doing Cool visual, but I do not know where we are and what is happening. I'm a little confused. And like, I was enjoying myself the whole time. And so I was like, there's something in there about definite. Like there's something in there. And so as I thought about it and I read it, I realized that Peter doesn't have an identity. Like he's kind of just kind of floating. And I was like, oh, that's very similar to the deaf experience of like, we are born and we're told like, you just can't hear. That's fine. Like you're, you're fine. You're fine. And like we're not really encouraged to lean into like, no, I'm deaf. That's my identity. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's, it's like oh, it's almost embarrassing. 
But then once you go, oh, I'm deaf, then you start to like really have a personality and really have an identity and really be like, this is how I communicate. This is what I like. This is what I need. And we start to really um, own our perspective as a person rather than be like, I try to be like everyone, but I'm not. And, I'm, and so I felt like Peter and that kind of resonated. That, that experience resonated for me, like those two Peter's journey from boy to Peter. And we also get what's called a sign name. So you're not like J-O-S-H. I have nine five, which is over my head. This is my sign name. So when people say, Josh, that's me. That's not Josh in general. That is this person that you see. My sign name is this. Hmm. And so I was like, oh. And so I started like playing with the script ideas. And I realized, I think that I want to put that story into the dorm room of a deaf school. So Peter is a deaf boy being dropped off in the dorm room at a deaf school, which is like a boarding school, but he has no parents and his dorm mates are Princess and Ted. And so... The story starts with them playing in the dorm room and then it's time for bed and the lights go off and they run out and this little girl comes in, Molly, and she she shows them how to tuck into sheets into the bunk bed and they turn it and they steal a projector from the library and they project images onto this sheet and the bunk beds are rolling and creating vignettes. And so they're basically giving this deaf boy language. They're like playing with him and trying to get him to understand what it's like to be at school, what it's like to have language access. And so you start to really see this deaf kid acquiring language and understand it's part of my artivism. Like I said, when I was trained, it's like what theater changes the world. And so it's my way of being like, this is why deaf schools and language rich environments for deaf kids are so important because it helps with the cognitive development. It helps with our understanding of the world and the ability to stand up and speak for ourselves. And so I think Peter and the Starcatcher does that already but by adding this extra layer, I think it, it really hits that point home. It drives it home, I think. Yeah. That's a very so that's cool pitch then. No, that's a really cool concept. I, again, now I would never have thought of that because, well, I that's not the world I live in. I, you know, I right. take my experiences and everything like that. So, and that's the beauty of theater as well. Putting right. on the same show 500 times would be 500 different ways because right. the experiences of whoever's leading it and the actors and, and all that. Yes. Stuff. I, yes. I'd love to have seen that. <laughs> that I think, well, I mean, we are pitching it. We are in develop pre-production now. So if you're interested and you're listening, please be vocal about this so I can make <laughs> it happen. Nice. When were when you put Peter together, we'll just use that one as the example. Uh, was it all signed, or was some of it signed? Um, and and if it was some of it, how did you decide which parts were going to be signed and which were not? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question. My original thought was to have an all deaf cast, um, and I struggled to find an all deaf cast in Wisconsin. You know, yeah, um, and I think that's just a product of not being included in the space you know when you're not included in the space you don't think you can go there it's hard to be like no you can now it's not like the door just magically opens and everyone's rushing in yeah um so i have to make some concessions but i do think that i always talk about this with my process is like we talk about actors as given circumstance what is the given circumstance that your character is in and so i i knew peter had to be deaf and i knew that molly had to be deaf and i knew that black stash had to be deaf because they're the three in crux, they're the three. And so um, I started with that and I was like, what does it mean? Like what kind of people? And so I, I played with the idea of Blackstash. Um, what if he's like Lloyd Farquaad in the way that like he's deaf, but he doesn't acknowledge it and he doesn't think there's anything wrong with him. And so like he's saying things. And what was funny is it ended up being this thing where Smee becomes his interpreter. And mm -hmm. so Smee is kind of like, there are moments where he's like, saying he says a line like starbucks starbucks and then like smee has to like clarify and sign and he's like oh oh so like it kind of found its its way out but i think it's just assigning who do i think should be deaf and then doing the given circumstances how would it work what would it and so prentice and ted interpret for peter when they're talking with alf and so like how do like does that mean they need to know a lot of sign language or a little bit and so i just allow it to be organic and allowed it to like grow and so Molly is a profoundly deaf woman who is signing very well. And her father, Lord Astor, also signs very well. So like there were moments where there were people just signing and we had voice actors voicing for them. And there were moments where there were people just talking and there were captions 
taking over for that. So I just allowed the given circumstance to guide me. And I thought about like not allowing the access for the audience to determine creative decisions. So like if the show had a moment where it was just signing, that was the choice. But I had to make sure that wasn't because, oh, I don't have anyone to voice for you. Or, no, no, like what is the given circumstance of the world? And then the next step is figuring out how do I get the audience to understand what's going on here? Very interesting. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we get, because you said um, there was hard to find deaf, all deaf cats mm -hmm. in Wisconsin. How do we as a society that could be economic, geographic, uh, religious, um, cultural, you know, things that stop you, but how, how do we get more people, deaf people into the theater world? What, what is your recommendation? What, what do you think? Uh this is a great question, and I appreciate you asking this question. I think that um, these conversations help make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, as a leader, I always like to to say the phrase, um, freeing people from concern, which is what Jim Carrey says as he works. He says, I like to free people from concern. So that's my first question is, whoever you're trying to bring into the space, deaf, any other communities, how do I free them from concern? And it usually means like, am, am I going to be safe in that space? Like, do I need to advocate for myself? So I would say like starting with identifying the community that you want to include. And we're going to say deaf is this, in this situation. We're going to say deaf specifically. That means they're going to, their concerns are, will I understand what's happening in the room? Will my friends who want to come see me in the show understand what's happening? Am I being part of this experience? Am I actually being welcome or am I being just like a token brought into the room for like pity's sake which is a very weird thing, like inspiration mm -hmm. pity it's a very weird thing to be in and like we already have that in everyday life so it's like to put ourselves into a space to receive that treatment is very different so it's like how well do this team know am I going to be asked to educate everybody on these things some of us are, are willing but some of us are like I already educate enough in life I don't need to do more I just want to come in and act you know so I always say like starting that mindset of like identifying what is the deaf community's concerns around your area, it should be economic, social, um, access, uh, training. And I think just giving like little free workshops, like, you know, improv, you know, who are your interpreters? Is there other, other deaf people behind the table to advocate and keep an eye out on what we're doing on stage? Because there's nothing worse than doing a show with a bunch of hearing people behind the table, doing the show and all the deaf people being like, that was a really weird show to watch you do. That felt really fake. And you're like, wait, I didn't, I can't see the whole product. I'm just in it. And so I think that's my biggest guiding principle is um, freeing people from concern. And the artistic director of APT, Brenda, uh, she says, we can only move as fast. We can only move at the speed of trust. And so I think if you don't have the community's trust, you have to give yourself years of time to build that relationship, to build, be, and I think this applies to the Latin community, the black community, indigenous community, deaf community, blind community, like every community that has been marginalized and it's excluded from the space. You have to give us time to earn that trust back. You have to give us time to believe that you actually want us in the space. And I know it feels like, well, we're already short staffed. We're already, you know, it's, there's so much we're trying to do. It doesn't have to be major steps. It's, Give yourself the space to slowly earn that trust rather than we have a show in five months and we have to make it. That then turns us into this like this product that you need to have. I need this disability item in my season so we can check it off and go. And it's like, no, it's not. You, you want to undo the behavior and the treatment from years and years of oppression to then move forward in a healthier pace. And we can smell that. We can sense that really quickly. So that's my answer. Yes. Now, I... Because we see it on the front end, you know, the, the theater community wants to invite people in, but I don't mm -hmm. think we talk enough about the back end of the support within the family or people. Cause I, I, I talked to my, my fiance, she's, she's Indian. If she had ever gone into theater, no, that's never happening in her culture and her background and everything like that. And, and parents wouldn't support that. Do you ever, do you see that changing as in, you know, parents saying, you know what, go into theater as an option or is it, 
still, and this is all any parent talking to a child, don't go into theater. You're not going to make money. <laughs> you won't succeed in anything like that. Was was that an issue in your family? It doesn't sound like it, but I could be wrong. And have you seen it in other families? I think it is an issue. I think it's. I think we're speaking to the the nationwide um, topic of arts funding being cut. I mean, that's just. A, I mean, we're not funding the arts, and um, I think that it's a very valid thing. And I think, how do we as institutions? I mean, like being in conversation with producers, it's like, how do we pay for interpreters? How do we pay for the captioning? How do we pay for this? How, you know, it's money. We have a capitalist and uh, a capitalist society. And so we have to figure out how to navigate that. And I think that what you're asking is, how does the theater make concessions for people who may not have the financial privilege to take six months off and just do a show, to leave their jobs and just do these things? Because there are some people who don't. And, and I know for a fact that like, in some of the, I can't name names and specific communities, but I do know like I've been in uh, conversations in like uh, think tanks where we're talking about disability, race, socioeconomics. And at the end of the day, you have to put more money in than you would for an average white person, I think, because of what you're talking about is we don't have the socioeconomics. It's like in Peter and the Starcatcher, the theater company did a great job of listening to me when I said like, you're going to face things in the process of hiring disabled artists that you did not think of and you have to give yourself the grace to go i need to pivot give me a few minutes give me a couple of days to figure out how to pivot for example a costume designer a deaf woman was not able to buy and supply all of the costumes on her own credit line she's like i don't have that money and that was something they were like oh Right. The system inherently goes, you buy the costume, you return the stuff, and at the end of the day, give me receipts, and I will reimburse you. She does not have the money for 60 days to be out $3,000, you know? And so having that change and, like, you can submit receipts every every week when you finish, go, we'll write you a check. It's making those concessions, and I think allowing yourself to uh, learn as you go. And I think you're right. It's like, how do you do that? And then that's when people can be like, you know what? You're not losing so much money. I, I, as a mother, can now allow you to do that. I, as a family member, can now allow. And I think, again, freeing people from concerns. So I think just identifying what a parent's concerns. Yeah. Nice. What ways could theaters and theater companies make their productions more accessible? Ooh, do we have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think nothing without us, nothing about us or for us without us. I think that's the phrase we keep saying is like having a deaf person consult on that in your theater area. I mean, Wisconsin prefers to have more ASL interpreters. Um, Louisiana prefers to have more C interpreters. It depends on what the audience is. And so it's not a one size fits all, but mm -hmm. I will say that using, one of the biggest things I say is what do we have? Because so many times I talk with theater companies and they're like, we don't have a Gallup Pro. We don't have $50,000 to install an LED captioning system. And like, we really want to. God knows we want to, but we just don't. And I'm like, do you have a television? Do you have a 60 inch television? Find a way to secure that on the wall. But it looked a little weird. Don't you have set designers? Ask them how to how to incorporate that. And the, I always say, like, when you're sitting at the audience, give yourself less than 45 degree angles of sightline between the captions and the action. If it's more than that, then you're going to be playing ping pong looking. So I always say just put two TVs on the proscenium. If you can get them built into the set, great. That is the first step, I think. Um, getting interpreters, but also like who's supporting those interpreters to be better, you know? And so that's why we have what's called a director of ASL. It is usually, we encourage it to be a deaf person who watches the show, watches the interpreters and helps them calibrate all of that so that the audiences can understand more. Um, so interpretive performances, caption performances, and that's only on the deaf end. I know there's more in accessibility for mobility and visibility, uh, visual, um, but that's what I can say from that. Yeah. That's that's what with our theater company has done for the last three years. We've added captions. We've got a TV. Oh, right. We've got yeah. every show is captioned now. And you know, even I can still hear, but you know what? Sometimes I don't understand what's being said and it's beautiful because it's right there. And I can yeah. go, oh, now I know. So I did a show with a theater company and they were like fighting me. 
So I said, just put a TV in the audience. And they're like, what? I was like, well, you said deaf people aren't buying tickets. So just put a TV in that section that you have reserved for the deaf people. And in admission, all the old people moved over and sat in front of the TV. And I was like, huh, mm. it's almost as if accessibility and inclusive design benefits. I don't know everyone. Just a thought, you know? Yeah. And yeah. It, it doesn't take away from the performance. It, 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 it's theater. It's not real in the first place. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's okay to have that there and, and make right. it a little bit better for everyone. So, right. like, yeah, I, I don't know. know. So, so tell us, do you have anything um, in the pipeline that you want to talk about that you want to promote? What, what, what have you got going in the future? Um, I, I'm now regrouping, refocusing, figuring out what I, how I want to move up in my career. I think I've been very fortunate to be where I am. Um, I think I'm just trying to get to level up. I think we all are. And so at the beginning of the year, um, I am definitely trying to get Peter and the Starcatcher made. So that's why I was like, if you can tweet and mention it and say something, I think the more we use social media to support artists, it doesn't have to be money, but just saying, I'm interested in seeing that. I think the more producers are like, okay, I will fund this. And I think that's the thing with anything. I was like, just signing a petition or, you know, whatever. So Peter and the Starcatcher is something I'm trying to make happen. Um, I have a couple of projects um, in mind that I'm not going to share because I need to, like, keep them for myself. I but I am now working on uh, building a community in Chicago. I want to find who are deaf artists, who are signing artists, who are people that want to make theater happen in Chicago in that realm. And I'm going to see what we can make here. That's my current goal. Yeah. That is very cool. Congratulations on everything Thank you've you. done. It, you've, you've had had an incredible career. You started on Broadway at right. early. Like, and then where do you go from there? But you know what you've done is is, is fantastic and deserves accolades and, and recognition. So uh, how can people learn more about you, your website or social media and things like that? No, um, uh, I'm joshuacastillo.com or you can go to at Castillo Joshua, which is my Instagram. Um, I usually post them there. I'm going to be starting a newsletter in the next couple of months where I send out information about deaf theater across the country because I have so many talented deaf friends. I have so many talented um, directors who are working with deaf artists and I just feel like the marketing is not letting it come through. So that's going to be happening soon. So just my website is the best place to go. Now I have to ask you, Yeah. what are you doing this year that we should know about other than this podcast? Like, like I say to all my guests, you know, what can you talk about? <laughs> like, yes. So um, for me, well, thank you for asking. Uh, in a couple of months in February, I'm doing a, a reading of Antigone, the Greek play. Uh, oh, oh, wow. Or a classical study. Yeah, I'm I'm directing it. So oh, um, casual, just directing. Yeah, it's, no big deal. It's yeah. it's it's for a classical studies course. So I'm directing it for them. Um, the radio station is hitting its fifth anniversary in March, so we'll be celebrating Ooh. that. Um, I've got I'm writing a show, a, a musical. Um, wait, you are writing a musical? Yeah, yes, that's what I do sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. It's, it's a thing. Yeah. It'll be a horror musical. That's all I can say right now. Um it's okay. It's okay, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. What, can you give us an idea that you're exploring this musical? Is it like you say it, horror, but like it's 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 gonna be a psychological supernatural horror musical. I'm gonna I'm writing it first as a movie. So it's gonna Ooh. be a 90 minute, 90, 95 minute, no intermission um set up like uh, a movie and that's all i'm going to talk about right now because i'm still working on it so well, it, i mean you're allowed to change but i i want to know where you're where you're at now where i'm at i'm so early <laughs> i haven't even finished, okay. finished the first draft so oh, it's gonna be sung yes. through um it's it's gonna be something it either works or it doesn't <laughs> it's gonna be something like that and I don't care either way. I'm happy. It'll be, it'll be. Yes. Yes. Please create that stuff. I want to see yeah. it. I'm so excited. And, and yeah, it, we'll see what happens. It's like any show that you write. It's probably not 10 years. It's probably 10 years away from going up like anything, but that's life. Right? So yeah. That's life. It's art. 
but well, thank you for asking. Um, of course, I'm so I, curious because I'm like, you have a lot of things behind this camera that I'm like, I'm curious what's gonna, ha where's he gonna do, where's he going next? I mean, there's a here. bunch of stuff that I want to try, but I it's early in the year and I haven't contacted some people about it yet. So okay. I, I gotta, by the end of the year, I'll let everybody know because I wait. There's four things I want to work on and make sure I get done, and uh, that'll be one of them. But uh, yeah. so again, Josh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. And uh, please keep in touch. And and if you've got any other musical theater stuff or any the, the you know, if you get Peter and Starcatcher up, you let me know. Because I, I Peter and the Starcatcher is like, it, it's not a musical, but no. it's got music. And it's it falls enough in my category that I will talk about it. <laughs> but so. it was like it, uh, they have the song at the end and then yeah. a song at the beginning and then a little shanty in the beginning it's it's like, i don't know it's, i know it's just i don't know it's fine it's, weird. Yeah. it's good but it's still weird um yeah uh thank you so much and thank uh, you. i look forward to keeping in touch and uh see where your career goes from here Thank you. Good luck with your reading, and I cannot wait to be in your audience for your horror musical. I am so excited. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. <laughs> All right. We were just speaking with Joshua Castiel um, here on Be Our Guest. Tune in next week as we'll speak with another guest or guest about their life, love, and passion. That is musical theater. I'm your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.